This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, Tiffany Bova. Wow. Strap yourself in because this one is going to be special. Wall Street Journal bestselling author for Growth IQ, sales growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce. She works with some of the most influential companies in the world to transform the way that they engage with customers, grow their businesses and create amazing customer experiences. Just an all-round insightful leader, growth enthusiast and an essential companion to some of the most influential CEOs around today. If you are interested in anything to do with growth, disruption, and how the best companies in the world use some combination of the 10 growth strategies that she outlines in her book to become mega businesses, then strap yourself in because this one is for you. It's a special episode. I don't know what else to say, except without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Tiffany Bova. My extra special guest this week is Tiffany Bova. She is the global customer growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce. Her book, Growth IQ, has been translated into seven languages. It was named the Wall Street Journal's bestseller and one of the top five books in leadership and strategy. She has been named as one of the most powerful and influential women in California. She also writes for the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and has been featured in articles from Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Hoover's USA Today, just go down the list. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Tiffany Bova, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been trying to get you on this show for about three and a half years now, and I'm super excited that you've, but I'm here. <laughs> that you've agreed to do it. Super excited. I'm your biggest fan. Um, let's talk a little bit about your background before we go into kind of the finer points of the book and, and your career today. So you went to Arizona State in 1984, and then you studied at the Marshall School of Business. Then you went to the Wharton School of Business. When did you realize that a career in business was the right thing for you? Such a great question, because I think the answer is going to be surprising. I often say that everything I learned about business, I learned at the carnival. Okay. And that doesn't always translate, but... I literally mean the carnival, like roller coasters, Ferris wheels, games, <laughs> uh, you know, throw the, the ring around the Coke bottle, all of that, right? Okay. Okay. So I was, uh, you know, 15 to 22 and my best friend's family owned the carnivals and indoor arcades where I was from. I was born and raised in Hawaii. And that's where I learned everything about business. Like, ordering teddy bears. You think it's oh, so easy. Well, no, there's different plushes and you can't just fly things in like they boat in, you know, it's a, it's an Island in the middle of the Pacific. So I learned about hiring and staffing and ordering and supply chain and sales and marketing and marketing at the carnival was, you know, stand up on a box and get a, grab a bullhorn, <laughs> very different marketing <laughs> than I'm marketing today. Right? right. So fast forward, go to college. I want to get an undergrad in business and lo and behold, at sort of the middle of my second year of uni, my college counselor pulled me aside. You know, I had my sort of, you know, twice a year meeting. Business isn't really for you. We think you probably would be better with another uh, career path or undergraduate degree. And I sort of tipped my head. You know, I wasn't getting good grades. 
because I felt like what I was learning in the books didn't feel like what I had just been doing for seven years. Now, of course, at that age, you think you know everything. So, you know, that's a very kind of, that's a different conversation. Sure. So I said, you know, okay, like I just want to graduate. So I did not graduate with an undergrad in business administration, but that entire experience also led me to not get my MBA. Hmm. So I went on and got like an entrepreneur. I took an entrepreneur class at, at USC, which is Marshall School of Business. And then later in my career, it's in my 30s, I went back and got an executive certification at Wharton for you know executive development program, which is kind of like this very, very condensed MBA program, like you know eight weeks. So you can't get into much trouble in eight weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I, I learned that I was a visual listen learner versus a read learner. So school wasn't going to work for me. I was that sort of like, let me go get my hands dirty and figure out how to do what I wanted to do in business. So I think that wasn't the answer you were expecting. No. Um, but I think what it sort of tells and shows is, you know, listen, you know, I think uh, on hands and, and even if you talk about marketing, you know, back when I was in college, there was no MBA for marketing. There was no, there still is no MBA for sales. So it had to be business. And I would have had sort of a minor little class in marketing. Sure. Which now I've had 25 years, you know, in the field of being a seller and then eventually running marketing and eventually running customer service that um, that I think life was the better teacher for me in this situation. Have you met that professor again, that that lecturer at university that told you that career in business probably isn't the best thing for you? So I get, you know, often I get in the mail, the little uh, alumni, uh, you know, trying to get donations, <laughs> like, hey, would you donate money to the college? You know, and I'm always like, I want to write back, mm. I make my money in business. <laughs> nope. <laughs> but, but, you know. It's, it, it's, a, it's harsh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's important that it's also, you know, there's so many messages in that, right? They didn't sort of see the potential that it was all about the grades and it was all about the curriculum. And I think we're now at a part time in, you know, the world where what's happened over the last 18 months has shown us that education can be done in so many different ways and not everybody learns the same way. Uh, and so I think that there's, uh, I'm, I'm super excited to see how technology will now be used in higher ed um, as well and kind of continuing lifelong learning versus you learn and then you don't learn anymore. That's not really how it happens, right? You get out of uni and you continue to learn. So uh, I'm excited to see what happens next. Definitely. As well as different modalities of learning, as you said, you're more of a experience, li- literal, let me do it and let me learn that way versus open a book and reading. And I think we're now in a very different world. And to your point, I think the world has changed quite significantly. Really fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about your role now at Salesforce. So you're the, the global growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce. What does that role entail and what do you do for Salesforce? Yeah, so it, it was a very interesting journey, right? So I stumbled into sales um, and uh, found out I was pretty good at it and was selling in technology. And I kind of started to move up and move up and move up. And as I started to move up in my selling career, I was asked to take over marketing and then I was asked to take over customer service. So I got this opportunity, uh, my last sort of executive role running those kinds of businesses uh, was for a Fortune 500 company here in the US. And I ran a division and built it from sort of zero to about 300 million over the course of just two years. Hmm. And then I, I decided that I needed to get off that merry-go-round that was 
it was sort of a very incredibly um, frantic pace of working at that time. Uh, and I decided I wanted to go and work for a company called Gartner, which was, uh, which is uh, the world's largest IT consulting and analyst firm, advising companies on how to grow better from a sales and marketing and customer service perspective. I was part of the team that made the prediction that the CMO would spend more than the CIO on technology, uh, which sent off a flurry of acquisitions across SAP and Oracle, Microsoft, <laughs> Salesforce, and others. Mm -hmm. uh, and as well, the impact of digital marketing in the way that brands would engage with customers. And so I, I got this crash course, if you will, over a decade on how to be much more of an academic on the craft of what I had done. And so I have this unique balance of being a practitioner and an academic. I don't talk about things I, I haven't actually potentially done. And I think that gave me a unique perspective. And so Salesforce came to me and said, hey, listen, we want you to keep doing exactly what you're doing, but advise our clients. And so, you know, I had clients like Deutsche and Singtel and BT and then all the massive tech companies, sort of the largest 10 in the world. I helped to uh, design the, the uh, go-to-market models for AWS, uh, for Microsoft, for SAP, uh, as well as channel coverage models for British Telecom and others. And... It, it being now here at Salesforce uh, gives me much closer of a connection with the executives because as an analyst, they'll only sort of let you in so far unless you're consulting uh, because, you know, they don't want you writing sort of, you know, bad things about the business. Um, sure. And so now I get to have these, you know, great conversations with executives uh, being here at Salesforce. Really fascinating. So let's touch on that then because as you rightly said, you've got experience, you've got a background in, in marketing, background in sales and background in customer experience or customer service, which gives you this really unique lens with which to have a perspective and write the book that you wrote, Growth IQ, which is a fascinating book. The 10 paths to growth, which you outline in the book, which essentially all businesses, regardless of size, can use to kickstart their top line growth are as follows, customer experience, customer base penetration, market acceleration, product expansion, customer and product diversification, optimizing sales, minimizing churn, partnerships, competition, and unconventional strategies. It's a mouthful. I'm, I'm glad I, I was able to get through that so quickly. But of, <laughs> a lot of those sort of tenants or, or ideas that you outline in the book are actually well-trodden. And a lot of marketeers and a lot of agencies listening to this will probably be very familiar with a lot of them. Is the approach when you wrote the book that hey, we've actually forgotten about a lot of these fundamentals and it's worth revisiting these things. I mean, there are a couple of in there that are new to me, which I'll, I'll, I'll come on to in a moment. But was the idea here, let's reintroduce these to people because the tried and tested uh, sort of ways of growing a business don't really go away? Or is the idea something else? So when I was working uh, with Gartner with so many companies on trying to find ways to growth. I would often, so the largest selling organizations in the world in tech to a startup that was hiring their first sales rep. When they would get into growth issues, you know, they'd have something called a growth stall. So either growth over quarter over quarter was declining or they were, you know, actually in negative growth at the moment. Uh, I would hear these three options. We need to hire more salespeople, spend more marketing dollars or cut costs. 
And it didn't matter who I was talking to. You kind of hear those three. And I'd be like, look, first of all, there has to be more than those three because (laughs) they're not always the best choice. Hiring more salespeople, you're not going to get that in quarter. So if you're listening and you're like, look, we're trying to accelerate growth. We're going to hire some more salespeople to go find more accounts. You might see that in two or three quarters out. You're not going to see it in the existing quarter unless that sales rep shows up with a book of business. From a marketing perspective, like I don't have to teach anybody listening to this about that. Something comes in the top of the funnel which you know is a whole nother conversation, which I hope we have, uh, it's not going to make it all the way through the funnel really quickly. And so then it, it ends up being cutting costs. And if you cut too deep, you just think about the last 18 months, lots of companies had to cut costs. Now all of a sudden people are showing back up to restaurants and you know the world is kind of in most areas is starting to open back up and people are being caught without employees. And so they can't actually you know recover and respond to demand because they made those cuts. So The book was really a look back of the strategies that have worked over the last literally 100 years, 130 years, if we want to get really specific. Uh, And I modernized them using social, mobile, cloud, big data, AR, AI, VR, all of the new technologies we have. And how can you accelerate into a new market is very different than it was 25 years ago. 50 years ago, 70 years ago. So how could you use the same method? So Growth IQ is not necessarily, if someone hasn't read it and they go to read it and say, well, I've never thought of this. It's, you know what, I haven't revisited to your point, the basics with this new lens of the fact that we can do so many other things like, you know, the ADA funnel. Okay, that ADA funnel literally is old, Hmm. very old. (laughs) And (laughs) does a customer literally just very gently go from one stage to the next stage to the next stage in a funnel. We all know that's not how it happens. You know, they're Mm -hmm. looking online long before they reach out. Yeah. I mean, so, so why use the funnel today is that, I mean, do you flip the funnel? Does the funnel still relevant, but yet marketers will still use the funnel. So I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying we have to find a way to modernize knowing now that our customers are very different, especially over the last 18 months the technology you know has really changed things as well you have the ability to to enter and exit markets industries sectors segments very quickly so you can learn and iterate at a much faster pace than we could just a decade ago you know with the advancements of technology so that that's sort of the the long and the short of this but last thing i'll say there is i was working in the quote and i'm using air quotes here the world wide web in 2000 I worked for the largest web hosting company in the US. I was the largest domain registrar. Um, we were doing things like infrastructure as a service, application service providers, and software as a service very early. I was a Loquas beta client. And back then, there was like a dozen MarTech products. There's 8,700 today. Mm. So there isn't a technology problem, right? This is a people process problem. And so if people can't sort of reimagine what marketing looks like or what growth looks like. You're going to keep doing the same things you used to do without taking advantage of all the things we have now at our disposal. Okay. So reimagining what growth looks like, what does growth look like in 2021 as the world, as you say, slowly reemerges from this pandemic? Do still, do a lot of the same tenants still apply in growth IQ that you, that, you, you know, with a lens of, sort of where are we now, August of, of 2021, what are the the executives and the leaders that you're talking to, 
what are they ask? What questions are they asking? Where is they? Where is their mind now relative to eighteen months ago, pre-pandemic? And do the same principles apply? So I'd say now, you know, you've got this digital first mentality, and we've been talking about digital first now literally for fifteen years, and all of a sudden, overnight, it was forced upon everyone. That if you didn't have a mobile strategy, you know, a mobile marketing strategy, you didn't have a social media marketing strategy, you only had potentially a in-store marketing strategy, or you know, mailers with no ability to conduct commerce online, or deliver online, or purchase online, and pick up it in the store. All the things we've seen over the last eighteen months, you really struggled. And so now the question is, how much of what we've just lived through, and what we've learned over the last eighteen months, will stick? And how much will go back to potentially the way that it was with some small adjustment? And so I think that as marketers, uh, especially as agencies, you know, pushing brands to think about all that has now been uncovered over the last eighteen months. What are you going to do different? So something like inclusive marketing. If you don't have an inclusive marketing strategy, and you work for an agency in today's climate, especially if you're marketing into the U.S., you've missed something, right? Because now it's how do we show our values, and how do we show,、um, you know, in a transparent way,、uh, lead with trust and compassion and empathy and all of those things in our marketing to attract customers who are now making decisions based on those things, not just the products and services we sell, but how we present ourselves as a brand has an impact as onto, especially in certain generations, if they want to work for you. Work with you and/or become a customer of yours, and if you ignore something like that, like you know the conversation of inclusive marketing was something we were talking about at Salesforce a number of years back, but now you see it showing up in advertisements, right, on TV and in movies, and you see that、um, really uh, uh, changed and accelerated because of everything that's gone on over the last eighteen months. And so, gosh, what a miss it would be if you just go back to the way that it was. And don't learn from what we've done, and then you know amplify、uh, things in different ways. So is that just table stakes now? Inclusive marketing is that just the way that we should be doing our marketing, the way that we should be doing business, not only to attract customers, but also for as you as you say to your point, employees.、Uh, you know, there's a real sort of employee employer brand there that you're able to sort of build as well. Of course, it needs to be genuine, and it needs to be. Uh, really well thought through. Otherwise, those things are very easy to be uncovered online,、um, and 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 businesses can can come a cropper. Is that just table stakes now? Is that what you're seeing with with the businesses that you're speaking to? Well, I think that they're becoming more aware of the impact and power that that authentic connection with customers has on the ability for a brand to grow. We all know the stories of when someone tries to do something like that and it fails miserably. <laughs> Those are the obvious ones, but you know something as simple as doing an inventory of all of the stock photography you use in a brand's marketing campaign. Number one, stock photography can absolutely not be your friend. Stock photography is not very inclusive either. Sure. So if you're going to use stock photography, like right, so you know even something as simple as it's interesting. Why is it that when it's a kind of a manager picture or a leadership picture? It's a woman sitting with a man looking over, giving them direction.、Hmm. It's pretty much that's always the shot. 
or you have lack of diversity with people of color. There's so many ways in which that can go wrong. But we, you know, uh, we talk about this all the time at Salesforce and we did an inventory. We caught ourselves missing on that. And even though 10 or 15 people would look at those ads, we missed it. And so we went through our own sort of, you know, uh, reckoning, if you will, right, of looking at that advertising, looking at how we were positioning the brand in an authentic way, because it didn't actually represent and match our values. It just was pick stock photography, right? Put it in and you're looking from a lens sometimes of, of that's not the lens. So I, I, to your point, do I think it's table stakes? Yes. But if you do it in an inauthentic way, it will backfire. So it has to be the values and vision from the executive team, right? You have to show the diversity, not only in your employees, but who your customers are and make sure that they can see themselves in your brand or using your products and services. Uh, and so there, there's a lot of power in it. And I, yes, I do believe it's table stakes, but I'd say the one thing I missed in Growth IQ, no question, is uh, I was a little light on employee and the power of, of that in growth, that the fastest way to get customers to love your brand is to get employees to love their job. Mm. And so employees loving their job is all the things we were just talking about, right? I feel like I'm heard, I'm included, I'm represented in what we do, whomever that may be. I feel like I belong. I feel like I belong, all those things. And so I'm a happy employee. And then if I'm a marketer and I'm working for a company and I have all that excitement and passion for where I work, it's going to show itself in the creative and in the content. And so it is a flywheel effect of really happy and engaged employees will result in a much better uh, engagement and connection with your customers. I want to talk about a couple of the sort of tenants that you have in, in the book, because they're absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Some of them are tried and, and true and, and ones that I guess will be familiar to a lot of people listening here. Let's start with customer experience and actually relating it to what you just said a moment ago. You said during the pandemic, a lot of businesses laid off staff or put staff on, on furlough as they did here in the UK. And now that we're reopening, those businesses are actually really struggling to rehire staff to get back up to pre-pandemic levels of customer service. I was in a shop with my wife just the, the other day and we picked up clothes. We were in there for about 10 minutes and we were ready to, to pay. And there was a huge long line. Um, we were waiting in the line for maybe about half an hour. And there were only two servers and we got to the front of the line. We asked, what's the holdup? Why don't we have more tills open so that we can speed up? And she said, we've not had the staff. It's very hard to get the staff um, where, you know, we're significantly understaffed. And it's something that we see time and time again with a lot of businesses that we're um, buying from that has a huge impact on the experience that a customer has. And I guess a lot of businesses have been able to steal a march over their competitors because of this. Could you just talk a little bit about that customer experience in the context of the pandemic in the last 18 months? I think that we, well, so let's back up and use that example you just gave. If it was two years ago and that happened, you probably would have put your clothes down and walked out. It just would have been like, I'm not waiting. Sure. But now we have a level of empathy for the fact that, look, the two people behind the counter are busting their butt, right? To, to serve you all. The line is long. They're doing the best they can because they're absolutely understaffed. Sure. So we have a level of empathy for the fact that most businesses right now uh, have this same similar issue. Now, how long will that last? 
three months, six months from now, would you keep standing in line and give them a pass? Or would you put your clothes back down again and walk out and say, that was a terrible experience. I'm not ever going to go back. Mm. So there's going to be a point in time where that, you know, that we feel like things should um, get back to business, right? So ultimately, you know, what are the, what, what does that look like? So I, I think that I would say the definition of customer experience now is very different than it was 18 months ago. So something like the appointment economy, I'm going to use that example. So what if you had booked an appointment to go to H&M that I'm going to shop between 10 and 1030, and it was going to be you and your wife and maybe a couple of other people in there, you could get one-on-one -on -one service and you'd be in and out of there in 15 minutes. That appointment economy now has shown that I can go and have a kind of a, you know, less crowded private shopping experience. I can book a time. I can show up. I don't have to wait in line. I can get my answers, you know, done. I can try on some clothes, you know, not with hundreds of people in the store. Ultimately, that would be a better experience. And so would something like the appointment economy continue? And we just saw an announcement with Disney that now they're going to sell magic keys for all of their parks so people can book going to the park and they can be much better at knowing how many people are going to show up, how many families, how many kids so that they can reduce the lines. Right. And so if you think about going to the doctor, you have to make an appointment. If you think about going, you know, and doing your attorney, you make an appointment, you, you know, there are things you make an appointment for, but shopping and retail was not one of them. But if you were on high street and you were shopping in a high end store, you could call and say, I want the store to myself because I'm going to spend a lot of money. Right. That's a very different shopping experience than there's a hundred people in the store fighting and waiting in line. So I give that as an example, because that's one of those things that I said might stick in some way that they may say, Hey, between 10 and two, we only take appointments between two and seven, you know, you just come in. And so I want to have the experience. Would you have booked an appointment with your wife to go into H and M? If you knew that you would be in and out of there a half an hour, would you say, we're going to get there at 10, it's going to be 10 minutes. We're going to shop and then we're going to walk out. Probably, but 10 o'clock is prime selling time for me. I, I can't be sh shopping at that time in the morning. But technically, that <laughs> if we had a time allotted to do that in the day, then yes, that, that definitely works. Because you could literally say, I'm going to leave work, right? I have 15 minutes. I'm going to go to H&M. I'm going to get what I need. And I can be back to the office. But if you did that and you only have 15 minutes today, you probably wouldn't go to the store because you'd be like, I just waited in line for a half hour. I couldn't do it <laughs> unless I had that you know, block of time. Yeah. That's exactly it. Really interesting. There are a couple of other ideas in the book that I want to kind of discuss with you in light of the last 18 months and, and the pandemic. One is partnerships and the other one is competition, which I kind of see as interrelated um, because it seems as though, you know, a lot of businesses now, a lot of agencies especially, are not actually seeing themselves. And this is what I'm hearing. And this is what I'm speaking, you know, hearing from a lot of guests that have been on the show. They're actually no longer seeing other agencies as competition anymore. And they're actually looking at people that used to be competitors in much more of a collaborative spirit hey, how can we partner on this to actually deliver a better product or experience to the customer? How do we have a better knowledge transfer? What can I learn from you? What can you learn from me? This is something that prior to the pandemic, it, you know, it wasn't as widespread as what it, as was it is now. And I, I guess I see that being mirrored in lots of other industries and, and sectors of our, our economy as well. And, and obviously we're seeing this with things like digital ecosystems, pop up all over the place and everyone wants to build a platform now and sort of no one can be an expert in AI and 
and 5G and, and all the rest of it and cloud infrastructure. So we're having to sort of pool our resources and, and collaborate a lot more. Talk a little bit more about where we are in terms of partnerships and co-petition and using that as a way of growing top line revenue. So partnerships, classic, right? I do a partnership with someone, one plus one in some way, hopefully equals three. Coopetition was working with someone, an unlikely organization that you may feel in some way uh, actually competes with you. And that is very different. So if you just even look at creating drugs over the pandemic, it was competing pharmaceutical companies working together to solve a big problem, right? Everybody kind of came together to say, that's very much coopetition, where you have one big agency and another big agency working with a joint customer, you know, that may be quote unquote coopetition. Why would you do that? Well, I'd say maybe the customer says, look, I have a UK agency and I have a US agency. It might not be the same agency, but you two need to work together, right? Where yeah. ultimately you'd view that as a competition. But in this case, because the customer is asking you, uh, you know, to, to step up and do that, you're going to do that. So ultimately, I think that coopetition has become far more common, especially even if you look in Europe, car companies working together, right? You'll have uh, car companies working together for battery, for, you know, uh, a lot of the AI and automation and autonomy. Like it's not one car company. It's how do we share this technology so that we all can benefit from it? But I would say this, the, the other thing is going back to that modernizing the way people grow is that partnerships used to be viewed very much like, okay, I don't want to do this, so you do it for me. And then it became a time where people were like, nope, so I'm just going to pick an agency again, right? Oh, are we going to hire external content writers? Or are we going to hire have them internally? Are we going to have designers? Or are we going to have them internally? Like that age old, build it kind of or buy it. And now so many have found the power of partnering to get those big core capabilities that might have been something that you always did in-house, but maybe this is you can't get people to come back to work and you still need to do right content. You still need to design digital, right? So ultimately, you know, what are the things that you can do? So, you know, I'm going to use Kylie Jenner as an example. She's one of the examples in the book. Obviously, she launched a, a beauty line 30 years ago. If you were going to do what she did or 20 years ago, you would have built a lab and you would have done R&D and you would have done it all yourself. Right. She partnered to do all of it. She built a, and you could argue what the number is, but let's call it a half a billion dollar business in US dollars with 12 employees, with 12 employees. Now, mind you, she has more social media followers than um, kind of anybody. So my, yeah. I get I get the difference in that, right? But I just wanted to call out that did she buy a lab? No, she partnered. Did she, you know, create a facility for R&D? No, she partnered. She used what was her strength, which was her social media platform. And how do you actually uh, double down there where you have your strengths and partner for the rest of it? And so if you're listening and you go, look, I just am unable to find talent and hire it in based on the conversation we were just having, is that what you want to do? Hire it in? Or could you find a content company that's really good at content and partner with them? you know, and it gives you scale and reach and you don't, you let them worry about the employee side of it and you really manage the quality. It gives you the ability to get in and out of businesses to try things and, and see if they work. So I think it's a, it's a huge benefit. Tiffany, last question before we get into our, our favorite questions towards the end of the show, which we ask all of our guests, 
if there was just one idea, and by the way, like there are a million questions that we weren't able to, able to get to. I really need to get you back on the show because the, the book is wide and deep and there are so many places that we can go. But if there was just one idea that you wanted your readers to kind of take away from the book that was, I guess, enduring and long lasting, what would that idea be? Uh, I, I would say that the originally the book was going to be much more focused on one of the key tenets, which was sequence. The order in which companies do things has measurable impact on, to, on their ability to be successful. Now, what do I mean by that? So in the US, if Netflix had started with streaming services only, it would have failed because we didn't have in the US high-speed internet. We had DVD players and VHS players. But when they left the US and they went to Europe, they didn't start with mail order, they started with streaming because Europe had advanced in uh, high-speed access uh, faster, you know, had had been faster than when where the US was when they launched here. Hmm. So they would have failed. And as a matter of fact, Blockbuster, which is, you know, a famous story, you know, had tried streaming a decade before Netflix did. But once again, the timing was wrong. And so they had to start with mail order to get themselves to streaming in the US. And that's what I mean by sequence. If they'd gone in the reverse order, Netflix would not be who Netflix is today, my guess. And you could even say something about Amazon started with books, nailed books, and then expanded into other categories. If they had just showed up selling everything, would they have been as, as successful? Mm. So I think the sequence is the big tenant for me that when I talk to executives and brands around the world, because I get the opportunity to do that every single day, that's one that when someone says, we're going to do this, I always have them pause and say, what are you doing before and after that? Why did you decide to do it in that order? And when I start to sort of peel that back, you you hear them actually start to get a little stuck. They just go, well, it's always the way we've done it. We always do this first. Or we tried it you know, a year ago and it works, so we're going to do it this way again. And I really try to push them to get creative and kind of think of that, you know, uh, have the beginner's mind to challenge the status quo and see if they could do things in a different order. Would it have better results? Really interesting. Tiffany, I, I know I've only got you for a few more minutes. Let's get into everyone's favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm really excited to ask you some of these as well. Who's the person behind the brand sort of questions? First one, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh God, there's so many. <laughs> there's, really, there's a lot. Um, uh, what it automatically comes to mind? I can say trying to write the book was, and I first started, yeah, it was a colossal failure. And the reason why is because once again, I said, you know, I'm not a read learner. I'm a listen learner. Well, I'm also not a writer. I'm a talker. <laughs> so how do you talk a book? <laughs> right. And so I was trying to write the book, like sit in front of the keyboard, right. And write a book. And that little flashing icon, like made me sweat. You know, it was, it was, it was painful. <laughs> pressure. Pressure. Right. And I'd be like the, um, <laughs> the, um, in the beginning, <laughs> yeah, in the beginning, in the beginning, there was a sure. bang. Right. And so, uh, I had to find a way to work within my strengths. So I, with each chapter, I built a presentation and I gave a keynote, recorded it, transcribed it. And that's how I got the first, you know, sort of rev of the book on paper, wow. because if I had to actually type it, it wouldn't have worked. So 
you know, the first three months I was very disappointed and frustrated. And then I got in my head and it was, you know, so this, the lesson for me was, you know, double down on your strengths. A friend of mine calls them non-strengths instead of weakness. Mm-hmm. Find a way to work through your non-strengths uh, to to really capitalize on on what you're good at, and and then how do you make that happen? Tell us about some of your favorite books. What have you read through the pandemic that's gotten you through fiction, nonfiction? What books have been most instrumental in the way that you think about your own career and your own growth journey? You know, I'd say this. Uh, in my 20s, it was about I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was sort of just figuring it all out. In my 30s, it was about career, uh, increasing my influence and title and earning capabilities. In my 40s, it was, okay, where do I want to take this? And then in my 50s, it's definitely been about, you know, how do I create a career where I can not only learn every day, but give back? And a lot of my reading, a lot of my listening over the last 18 months has been about the human side of what I do. How can I connect better? What more can I do? What platforms can I engage with? What can I launch? Um, and so, you know, reading a lot about that kind of personal journey uh, has been uh, really good for me because, you know, as we were talking about before this started in 2019, I flew 275,000 miles or 600,000 kilometers, 100 keynotes, six continents, and then boom, it stopped overnight. And, you know, a lot of how I define what I do was my travel and my speaking. And so I had to redefine who, who and what I was and how I was going to do it and how I was going to communicate uh, and get a lot of the message out. And so that's where I focused was how do I improve that side of what I do every day versus what I've gotten very comfortable doing every day. So it was a lot about the stretch on the human, emotional, um, compassion and empathy and giving and, and mentoring and all of that side of, of what I do. That, that's really where I've been focused over the last 18 months. Mm. What have you been doing for fun during the pandemic while you've been grounded? I, so I've made uh, a half a dozen trips uh, over the last 18 months, if not maybe one or two more. Uh, I was, as I mentioned very quickly, I was born and raised in Hawaii. So um, when the pandemic hit Hawaii, like Australia, you know, immediately locked down because it's an island and it could be very devastating uh, for obvious reasons. As soon as they made it easier for me to get on an airplane and fly home and, and find a flight that would go. <laughs> And then figure out how do we not quarantine for two weeks when we get there and the negative testing and all that that happened. I went home quite a bit. As a matter of fact, I got home uh, last night. I was home for a week. And so for me, that is my happy place. Get in the water, surf, swim, go to the beach, hang out with friends. Uh, you know, it really recharges the soul. So that is always my go-to. If I am feeling a little lost, um, that's where I go. For fun, fun, you know, any sports, hiking, walking, golf, you know, anything I can do activity wise, because, you know, we do a lot of sitting in our jobs. Um, and so, you know, anything that gets me out of the chair and outside, uh, I'm all in for. Absolutely love it. I think you answered my next question as well, which is what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? I think you've asked, answered that one. Let me quickly move on. Last couple of questions. Amazon Prime or Netflix or Disney Plus or BBC Worldwide. What are you watching or streaming that's been good? Yes, <laughs> to all of them. <laughs> to all of them. It was like all of them. It was all of them. All the time. You know, and 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 then, oh yeah. And then when you run, well, you know, the first four months, it was just like, 
oh my God, I don't think I've watched this much television like in the last decade, but we're just going to, you know, binge watch, you know, (laughs) whatever we could get our hands on. Um, But I've also spent some time on, on, uh, you know, when everything happened in the U.S. with George Floyd, um, I realized that I needed to educate myself. And there was so much I just did not know. You know, obviously I'm a white woman born and raised uh, in the U.S., in Hawaii, which is, if you've ever been there, the culture is very different than the mainland U.S. Mm. It's extremely different. It's very Pacific Rim. You know, it's Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Samoa, Tonga, Guam, Thailand, Taipei, Japan, China. Like, right? It's very different. I read than, Obama's and- book. He he paints a very interesting picture of uh, Hawaii and the surrounding islands around the mainland U.S. relative to the mainland. So, yeah. Well, so great story. So the high school I went to had two African-Americans in it, and one of them was him. Wow. So, you know, his his name was Barry at the time, not Barack. He went by Barry in high school. But, you know, I he's a couple years older than me. And I would think I was a freshman. He was a senior. And uh, you went to the same high school. What high school was that? Yeah. That's an amazing high school. Punahou. <laughs> that, that's that, that's an incubator for talent right there. It's amazing. Sorry. Continue oh yeah, I story. mean, yeah, you know. So we had the founder of AOL, Steve Case. Wow. We had we had Barack Obama. We had the founder of eBay, uh, Pierre Odemeyer. We had uh, we have um, a couple of uh, one of the judges on Dancing with Stars. We've had athletes. We've had the U.S. Olympic team uh, swimming. Um, water polo and volleyball all trained there on their way to Tokyo this year. But anyway, so most of the African-Americans were in the military, which then meant, you know, they were on base. They had a very different life. Um, You know, uh, the sort of, you know, the Latin culture was also not big in Hawaii. So I was the minority. That's a very different story than if I were living in the mainland U.S., right? So when everything happened with with George Floyd and all that came up, uh, Salesforce did a really amazing job of uh, putting out content and having conversations and having sort of training and things we could learn and listen and 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 really dig into. Uh, and that was the first six months, probably where I spent a lot of my, you know, time in trying to figure out. Okay, now that I know what I know, you can't unknow it. How will I change what I do every day to try to make a difference? Um, especially for providing opportunity for those who I never realized. Now I realize I have to do something. And so I I think that um, once again, I think it comes with age and time and understanding. And then you have a millennial generation that will know nothing different than this, which is inspiring on so many levels. So I'm excited to see where this all goes. Uh, And it was exciting to see the world all rally around a conversation we have needed to have for a long time. Just last question on that. Where do you think corporate America is right now on this issue? I mean, you speak to a lot of really senior executives. I know there's a lot of content being pushed out by a lot of large companies in solidarity and support. It's a very different thing sometimes to what actually happens internally and and real people's opinions in the boardroom. What's your sense of how much this has struck home and the change that people are now waking up to, is this a, a a real thing? Is it temporary? Is there is lasting change going to happen? What's your sense from the people that you speak to? 
when I was making a decision of where I wanted to go after Gartner, uh, the absolute number one reason I chose Salesforce and I was blessed that they chose me was uh, this very answer is I would leave Salesforce events wanting to be a better human being. It had very little to do with the technology that we sell. And our CEO, Mark Benioff, is a champion for these conversations. And one of his sort of business is the greatest platform for change is, is sort of where I call my true north of how do we allow that to happen? I think we're all on a journey um, on a global basis. Some are further along than others. We've gone, come a long way on equal pay, um, but that didn't mean we had equality in, um, you know, for people of color in the percentage of employees that we have. So we, you know, we were doing really well in one category. We have uh, work to do on another, but the intentions is there. The transparency is there. We share our numbers. We talk about sustainability. We talk about equality. We talk about pay. Um, and, and I think that uh, there are more conversations. I think even think in some some ways there are parts of Europe that are ahead of us in, uh, in the in the U.S. So the good news is we're having the conversation. Now it's how do we keep the momentum going? Um, and it isn't just, uh, you know, people of color, it's women, it's those that have disabilities. You know, there is lots of work to do um, that collectively as a corporate community, we need to figure out a way to be better with it. Really, really well said. And my final question, Tiffany, what is it you know about growing businesses today that you wish you knew right at the beginning of your career? Boy, you know, I'd say this. Um, I am not an entrepreneur, and I think I gave myself a lot of grief for not actually, because I advise a lot of people who start businesses and grow businesses, and I used to be like, why can't I do this? And and I think uh, once I realized that I was not an entrepreneur, it freed me up to focus on the things that I am good at, but I would say, I would say the people side of business was something over time I have realized is just, that is the engine behind every brand is people behind every product is people behind every support call is people behind every ad is people business is people and if i had known that earlier i would have really started to pivot more onto the marketing and customer service side because i was such a hardcore seller um, that i didn't always expand uh, my understanding uh, and so I, i'd say that that that's something that i wish i had had um, sort of a better connection with I did as a leader, but I mean as an external influence into the business, hmm. the people, the customer, the employee back in. Um, uh, I, I'd say that that is an area where, uh, especially for entrepreneurs, when they're starting out, that they're so interested in, in making money and keeping the doors open. Sometimes they forget about the people. Hmm. Really interesting, really well said and, and a great place to end as well. Tiffany, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, of course. Again, thank you for asking. We have been speaking with Tiffany Bova. She is currently the Global Growth and Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce and author of the fantastic book, Growth IQ. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 140 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in business growth. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Annie Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own deal masters. Christoph Buaszczyk is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. Mm-hmm.